So the scripture reading is in Colossians 3, 16, 4 to 1. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for your wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Thanks, Andy. Hey, before we jump into our text this morning, uh, just a quick announcement about this coming uh, week. On Sunday, we will start one service Sunday, so we will gather for one service at 10 a.m. We will gather for one service at 10 a.m. We are going to gather for one service at 10 a.m. Uh, how many services are we having next week? One service. What time is it? 10 a.m. Beautiful. So if you show up uh, now, you'll be really late. I told first service, they were packed, and I just said, uh, aim for 9.30 still, because then you'll get here on time. All right, so, uh, but you have to come earlier if you're a second service person. So 10 a.m. next week. We do that because a lot of folks of our core, our core church kind of travel through the summer, and this will give us a chance uh, because a lot of new people come into the area in the summer. It'll give us a chance to connect with them uh, with the bulk of our body here uh, together and worshiping together at 10 a.m. on Sundays. And then also it gives our volunteers, we serve about uh, between 60 to 80 kids on a Sunday morning. So uh, it gives our first service, second service volunteers a, a rest uh, to kind of just run one service together. Uh, thank you so much if you're serving with the kids, by the way. And, and then third, it gives our, our staff a chance to uh, plan for the fall and just uh, move it in the fall effectively. So um, one service, 10 a.m., starting next week for the summer. Uh, the last uh, of those one services will be August 20th. Uh, then the 27th, we'll jump back to two services with the start of school. All right? Uh, the second announcement is not really an announcement. This is a call to prayer. So uh, if you've been here for any amount of time, you have heard we have been looking for a building that we might be able to uh, take all the money we're leveraging to rent this space for just a couple hours on Sunday morning and a couple hours on Wednesday night. Uh, and, and put it towards a permanent space where we can uh, sink our roots here in Silver Spring for generations to come. Uh, so God seems to be doing uh, some of that. So, man, uh, we have, um, it's been a, quite a process. <laughs> I'll just put it lightly. I'm not going to share the whole story again. Uh, but it seems like maybe God uh, is opening up with this possibility, uh, his provision. So, uh, there's a big moment uh, in this church nearby this Sunday. They're, they're discerning together, uh, ought they to sell their building? And so they're going to decide on that on Sunday in a vote. And so I just thought we ought to be uh, on our knees asking God that uh, he might open up this possibility for us as well it gives just great continuity uh, that their congregation could flourish uh, in renting back from us and then deciding for the long haul what the next season of their uh, church life looks like. So it's a really an amazing situation where uh, both congregations would be able to flourish. So 
if you're able and would join me, would you uh, kneel with me now? Uh, you might be asking as you're kneeling, why is Beju's uh, email up there? Uh, she's spearheading prayer for us. So we're going to be praying throughout the week in different ways, fasting and doing some different things. And then next Sunday on the 11th, we're going to pray for 24 hours. So uh, you'll be able to sign up for a slot if you email Beju or sign up at the back table on your way out. So uh, bow your heads uh, with me and we'll pray together. Uh, out loud, all at one time, uh, just all at once, the Lord will sort out our prayers. Uh, let's just come before him and ask him to move mightily that he might provide this building, this space uh, for our church, for generations of the work of the gospel here. Let's, let's pray out loud, all at once, all together. So God, we come before you now, um, trusting you. You're sovereign, you're good, you're mighty. At every step of our church, God, you have uh, provided uh, just what's needed when it comes to space at the right time in the right ways, and, and even just generously. So we pray you do it again. God, we pray that this church might decide to sell their building, that we would get to purchase it. They could use the money for their flourishing, and we could use the building for our flourishing, and it might just be a beautiful thing uh, for the work of the gospel. God, would you do that? <laughs> we just ask that you would. And in the same moment, we trust you. We, we know you're good. We know you're sovereign. And, and we, with open hands, like everything in our life, when we ask you for it, we know that uh, what you decide and the way you work things out, it's best because you're a loving, you're a good, and you're a mighty Father. So we trust you. Uh, now let's each of us just come before the Lord silently and, and do as we have done some weeks and just ask that he might speak to us in the sermon through his scriptures for his purposes. Uh, come and praise of him first and then ask that he might move, uh, opening your minds and hearts to what he has to say to you in the scriptures this morning. Father, building or not, we just want to be your people. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to serve you. Uh, we trust that the ways you've laid out for us to live life lead to flourishing and lead to life. So we want to just lay everything down before you. God, would you open our eyes this morning more and more to the glory of your Son, that we would give our lives more fully over to him, that we would rest in his grace, we'd be refreshed in his, his grace and his love for us, and we would be compelled to live our lives for him in new ways, uh, risking in faith and, and following him into steps of obedience we've not yet taken. God, transform us this morning, we pray. Speak to us in your scriptures, we ask. It's in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so we've hit in this uh, passage in Colossians where, uh, you, you know, in most churches, uh, what would happen is you'd get to kind of chapter 3, and you've been going real slow, almost verse by verse, and then it'd be like, whoop, 
let's do chapter four. You know, <laughs> that might be what takes place. But, but what we want to do is, and we have seen uh, in chapters one and two, just the glory of Christ, how amazing he is, right? All these ethereal ideas of how majestic our Savior is, all he's done. And then we want to take what's ethereal and make it real earthly today. All nuts and bolts. See, we, uh, we want to take uh, our worship on Sundays uh, when we say, Lord, we love you, we serve you, we trust you, we're going to follow your ways, and then we want to live that out on Monday morning. And that's why instead of skipping over this passage, we're really slowing down. Uh, it, it, maybe, maybe when you heard it read, you heard wives submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And you just said, and I'm out. That's why I hate this, <laughs> Right? I'd say just go back and listen to last week's sermon. It was a wonderful one, and, and we really honed in on those verses, and, and I think you'll find it refreshing and compelling. Uh, this week, we're going to slow down, and we're going to squirm a bit more. If your Christianity, if you're following Jesus, is not making you squirm, you're probably just kind of crafting your own religion in, our, in your own mind. If, if you're, you're following Christ doesn't make you squirm, and if you're following Christ doesn't move from Sunday morning to Monday morning in the way we live these things out, then, it, then these things, it's probably not Christianity. So what we want to do, we're going to slow down, and we're going to hit verses 22 in chapter 3 down to chapter 4, verse 1. And I think we will find that uh, we're going to walk away from this passage going, Wow! I can't believe how much that transforms the way I think about my Monday morning, and, and I can't believe how much that brings about the transformation in this world that I want to see occur. So we're going to go through the, the commands. I'm going to give a little context first, and we'll slow down in the commands, and I'll, I'll just lift out a couple principles, okay? Uh, so uh, let me read just that passage that we're going to slow down and focus in on that we might squirm and we might follow Jesus and trust him on Monday mornings, uh, maybe in a new way after today's sermon. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, uh, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that has been done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so the first thing that's rattling around your minds, your hearts right now is probably, how could Paul, how could God command this kind of thing about uh, slavery or bondservanthood and, and masterhood? How could Paul say these kinds of things? Why doesn't he just scream, tear it all down, stop doing that? Context makes all the difference to answer that question. How could God command this? So here's some of the context. A uh, first historic context. Uh, the first thing we need to know is New Testament slavery is not like the slavery that is in our mind when it comes to uh, chattel slavery or the uh, Atlantic uh, slave trade. It's, it's very unlike that, and, while at the same time, it is also like that. So let's, let's talk about the historic context. Uh, first of all, uh, this New Testament uh, slavery, bond servanthood, it can, uh, that word doulos can be translated bond servant or indentured servant. 
Uh, it is unlike what we immediately think of when we think of slavery or servanthood. It's unlike it. One, it is not race-based. It's not racial. Uh, secondly, it's often economic. So someone might find themselves in debt to another person, and that person would say, hey, would you rather come into my uh, servanthood in my home to work off your debt, and then after you've paid off the debt, uh, you're released and free? Uh, it is also, it's not generational. It doesn't go from one generation to the next. It's not handed down through your family line. You, once a slave, you're then enslaved again, or a bond servant or indentured servant. You're then always an indentured servant. Uh, indentured servants were also educated. That was part of being a part of the family, uh, and that's why we find these within the family household codes, right, of husbands and wives and children, and now uh, bond servants or servants in the home. Uh, you know, you, that's in one sense, then it is, it is unlike what we naturally think of when we think of servanthood or slavery. But then at the same time, it is very like that as well. And it is very awful. There's no way around it. This is owning of another human. Uh, for whatever reason, whether it was uh, war and then uh, these people were taken captive or, or dead and then for an amount of time you are actually owned by this person, it is still ownership and it is awful and is antithetical to who God is and how he's created us as image bearers with great worth and value and eternal worth. It, it, it's, it's completely antithetical to the idea of love your neighbor and your neighbor is those who are unlike you and those who have less than you and those who are different than you. Love and pour yourself out, your resources and your care for them. It's very antithetical to a God of justice, who our God is. It's very unlike, in one sense, this slavery is unlike what we think of, but it is also very like it in that it is ownership and it is awful. Because uh, what will often happen in this passage is, is someone will say, man, because it's so unlike what we think of, that's why Paul can give these commands. I don't think that's the case. I still think it's awful, even in that historic context. And, and this is part of, uh, by the way, all of history, this uh, universal kind of uh, history of bondage from the very beginning, right? Uh, where all peoples and all times have taken and leveraged power to put others in bondage and servitude to them. It, this is not a, a black-white thing, uh, this, that thing, a Japanese-Chinese uh, thing. This is, uh, not a, this is a sin problem. Uh, today, depending on who you count, there's 40 million slaves out there, either in labor or in such low wages that uh, it may as well be slavery or sexual slavery. There. And, and so uh, in differing degrees, this has always been everywhere all the time, and it is a sin problem. So it's like and unlike the slavery we think of, and it is awful. So it's not because this is just a tame version of servitude that this is allowable in a sense of, oh, that's why Paul or God commands this. That's a historic context. Uh, the second is a scriptural context. Uh, when we think of the scriptures at large, the scriptures will uh, approach any topic in the culture and the time uh, in which uh, the audience is being addressed. And, and when the scriptures address something that is going on, it, it, the scriptures are not approving of that thing. So it's kind of the difference of descriptive and prescriptive. Like, uh, might be describing the situation, in this case, how to live faithfully in this situation, while at the same time not approving of the actions of the master and the servant, or that whole system, right? It's, it's saying, uh, Paul is saying, uh, this is how to live faithfully for God in this current situation. By addressing the situation, he's not approving of it. 
in the same kind of way, uh, and he's, he's kind of uh, sowing these seeds which will bring about a gospel revolution which will destroy the system as well. So that's a bit of the scriptural context. Nowhere in the scriptures is God condoning or uh, approving of slavery. And, and what's so disgusting and despicable about our history here uh, in the States is, is often the scriptures were used to uh, support the idea of slavery. And, and I think God throws up in those moments of disgust, of, of complete contrast to who he is as a just God, and in complete contrast to how we are to love each other and care for each other and leverage our power and our strength for the good and care and support of others, and in complete contrast to the, the, the reality that we are image bearers, each of us, no matter who we are, where we are, what we are, our stories, our ethnicities, our cultures, or any of this, we are each image bearers, eternally valuable, shining off the living God who's made us as his own. Nowhere in a scriptural context does God condone or approve of slavery. Actually, it's quite the opposite. And as we get into the passage and the nuts and bolts of it, we'll see how this has worked out. What, what, so we've, we've looked at the historic context of how to answer this question, why would God command this? We've then looked at the overarching scriptural context, but then in the very acute, kind of very specific scriptural context, we have this situation in which Onesimus is carrying this letter back to Philemon. And you'd say, well, who is Onesimus? And I'm going to tell you a bit about him. And here's what's occurring in uh, this specific situation where Paul, remember, Paul is uh, in jail in Rome, and Onesimus has come and visited him, and Tychicus and Epaphras are there, and these kind of friends of his, and and he's, he's getting to know them deeply. And then he sends Tychicus and Onesimus back with this letter to the church in Colossae and back with the letter to Philemon, who's a guy who lives in Colossae, and also with the letter of Ephesians back to the Ephesian church. So Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying this letter, and here's why this is going to matter in a second. Uh, go down to chapter 4, verse 7, if you've got your Bibles out. Tychicus, he's going to tell you all about my activities, Paul says. He's a beloved brother. He's a faithful minister. He's a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you would know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's Tychicus. Now he says, and with him, Onesimus, who is a bondservant, by the way, who is a, uh, that same word, doulos, a, a slave, uh, he is coming back with this letter as well. He is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Philemon is going back to Colossae with this letter in hand. And, and Paul says when he gets back to the church there, would you receive him as a faithful and a beloved brother, family? Uh, in the letter to Philemon, you don't need to turn there. We're going to turn there later. Uh, in verse 16, uh, when Onesimus is going back to his owner, and we don't know quite the relationship, though it's most likely that of indentured servant. Maybe he's paying off a, a debt he has to Philemon or her. He's trying to learn a skill in Philemon's home, and he's executing on that or whatever it might be. He, he returns to Philemon, his owner, like, remember, and unlike. It is still awful. And, and he comes back to Philemon, and in verse 16 of just that, it's just a 25-verse little letter that Onesimus is carrying along with the letter to the church in Colossae. He, he hands it to Philemon, his owner, and in there, in verse 16, the same thing is said. 
Paul says, don't receive Onesimus as a slave or bondservant anymore. Receive him as a brother, a beloved brother. Uh, elsewhere in the scriptures when Paul is writing about this idea, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, that those who enslave others are sinning. It's in this list of all these sins, and he says the enslavers, those who own another person, are in sin. Or when he's talking about uh, even just this indentured servant idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, uh, he, he says, hey, uh, everyone, no matter where you are, if you're slave or free, if you're circumcised, not circumcised, if, if you're single or married, he says, man, wherever you are, be faithful to the Lord. But then he throws in this little thing. He says, but if you're an indentured servant, if you're a slave, you ought to fight for your freedom. Try and get free. So that context is going to matter a lot as we go through the passage, that nowhere is Paul condoning, and actually he is sowing the seeds that will bring about a gospel revolution that will tear this awful practice down. So why does Paul command this? Why does God command this? Well, first off, because his primary concern is our faithfulness to Jesus no matter where we are, no matter what we're in. No matter any circumstance of our life, his primary concern is our faithfulness to the living God. And then secondly, the reason he commands this is he hands this letter back with Onesimus to Philemon is to bring about a wildly, otherworldly gospel transformation, a revolution of, of transforming this practice, uh, particularly in the life of the church, but then all around them. So let's get into it. We're going to slow down and look at some of these uh, commands, the nuts and bolts, ins and out of them. And a lot of this will pertain to uh, this idea of uh, employer and employee. Right? We all have a boss or we are the boss, and so uh, some of these will uh, pertain to us depending on the cer different circumstances, uh, much like uh, 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 Philemon and Onesimus, but uh, a bit different relationship as I've tried to outline for us in context. All right, let's get into the passage then. Uh, first, verse 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Uh, the first thing that jumps out, you, you have bond servants or indentured servants and then uh, earthly masters, right? So that's the relationship that's being talked about in this passage. Uh, now, I think uh, Paul is is purposefully choosing his word here, earthly masters. Uh, first of all, he, he's, he's kind of contrasting the idea that uh, we all have an earthly master, but we all have a heavenly master. What he'll say in contrast here is we, uh, you as a bondservant have an earthly master, right? But you also have, and he'll say, the Lord Jesus Christ three times in the next couple verses. That the Lord Jesus is your ultimate and eternal heavenly master. No matter who you are, if you're at the lowest rung or at the highest rung. Uh, because then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says the same kind of thing to the masters. He says, masters, chapter 4, verse 1, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing what? That you also have a master in heaven. So what's going on here is Paul saying, uh, you might have this uh, person of authority over you here, a uh, master of sorts, uh, but you have a higher master. Whether you are a master or you're a bondservant, if you're an employee or an employer, if you're a boss or someone who is under the boss, every one of us have a, a heavenly master, the Lord Jesus Christ, over us. 
right? That's the contrast of our masters, that we're all in submission to Christ first, who's purchased us, and, and praise God that he is our master, and what a benevolent, amazing, mighty master we each have. Paul would call himself a doulos, a, sl- a, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus. It's one of his favorite titles for himself through his whole life. We all have a master, but I also think Paul is doing something kind of subversive here as he plants the seeds for a revolution of the gospel. He says, uh, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now, the translation there is sarks, your fleshly masters. It's really interesting, that word sarks. Uh, whenever Paul, you, well, most of the time Paul uses this, it's got a really negative connotation. <laughs> it's like your flesh. You, you're chasing your flesh, your pride, your lust, your greed, your selfishness, all the nasty stuff of your life when you're chasing the things of the flesh. Now, sometimes he does use it in a neutral kind of way, too. He never uses it positive. <laughs> and so what I think Paul is doing here is he, he's saying, look, we do have two different kinds of masters, but you have an earthly master who is a fleshly master uh, who is living according to the ways of the flesh, uh, leveraging their strength and their power over you in this circumstance, kind of calling out in a negative way what is occurring. But then he goes on and says, even in that circumstance, and he'll say the same kind of thing in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. Even in that circumstance, Paul says, live for your heavenly master. It's mind-blowing. It doesn't make sense to us. <laughs> he says, even when there's injustice going on, live for your heavenly master first. And he says, work this way, right? Uh, not by way of eye service as people, please. Don't you, when the boss is looking and, and you're like, oh, man, I'm just, <laughs> you know, this happens to me every March Madness, right? Uh, I was a teacher for a little while, and during March Madness, all you want to do is watch the basketball games. And uh, you're watching March Madness basketball, college basketball, and then what's on the right top right-hand corner? The boss button. <laughs> you tap it, it says boss button. It immediately goes to like a spreadsheet. So it looks like a spreadsheet. So when your boss walks by, you're no longer watching March Madness. You, you hit that boss button and a spreadsheet pops up. You know? and, and Paul says, look, don't just obey when they're watching you as people pleasers, but with sincerity in your heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. In everything, not for eye service, heartily, with all you have working for your God in heaven, even when the boss is out of town or on vacation this summer, we work heartily for him or her. We go after it because they are not our boss. Our boss in heaven is our boss. And so we work in this kind of way uh, for God. Why? Because we have an eternal inheritance. Knowing, verse 24, that the Lord, from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It's like uh, Paul at the end of his uh, life in 2 Timothy says, I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. He's, uh, it's, it's almost like this welcome home, good and faithful servant you've done as you've been asked. Knowing we're going to have this inheritance with our true Lord in heaven forever. We've served him well in our vocations. And then there's this shift uh, back towards the master, but also speaking back to the uh, employee. Uh, and, and we read, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for wrong as he has done, and there is no partiality. Uh, so uh, we see here, I, I think that uh, if, 
At first glance, it's this idea that uh, we as workers or those under authority will be paid back for the wrong that is done. So if we, if we don't work heartily, if we only work when the boss's eye is on us, if we, we're not doing what's right, we're not finding our, our servitude first to Christ, our, our master, uh, then there, there's wrongdoing will be repaid, right? God doesn't show partiality. But, but then I think actually that Paul is pointing forward toward the master here too as well. They saying, hey, look, the wrong that's being done, it's going to be paid back with no partiality. You think you're high and lofty over others, but you have a master also, and the wrong that's being done will be repaid. Justice will come. Justice will come. And then he directly uh, speaks to the masters. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, that would be countercultural in that time. That is saying, uh, uh, do justly towards those under your service. Be fair and kind. Uh, treat them like your master in heaven has treated you, and even in his patience now is withholding his justice over you. So that's the nuts and bolts. Let's uh, withdraw a couple principles here. Uh, the first principle is this. Wherever we are, we are faithful. That's our number one priority in life. Nowhere, wherever we find ourselves, we, are, we first ought to find ourselves faithful to the Lord there. If we live here or there, if our job is this or that, if we are in this relationship or that relationship, if, if our husband or our wife is treating us like this or that, first, our first and primary concern is I want to be faithful to my God and faithful in the way I love and care for and treat my wife. I want to be faithful to my God and then faithful in the way I serve at work with excellence and wholeheartedly. Uh, there is no sacred or secular wherever I am. And, and, and immediately we think of circumstances in our mind where we say in our own life, even here, even there, but you don't know how he's treating me or you don't know how, how terrible a boss she is. You have no idea. And so I can't work for him or her or do this or that. Now this passage is bookend with these kind of uh, massive statements of verse 17 in chapter 3. Whatever you do, <laughs> where, whatever you do, do it in word and deed, everything. Whatever you do, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> Wherever you are, whatever you're doing. He repeats that same idea in this context in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. He says the same kind of thing as I've mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. Paul is talking, he says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Wherever you are, live that life in faithfulness to Jesus. Don't first, now, yeah, yes, you might change your circumstances, he says here, uh, for the bondservant. If you can, find your freedom. You might try and change your circumstance for the first, uh, the first pursuit in our lives, no matter where we are, is to say, what is faithfulness to my, my master Jesus, who's given his whole life for me, who loves me deeply, and is with me now in this circumstance? What does faithfulness to him look like? Wherever we are. There is no sacred or secular. We don't kind of have our, our Jesus life over here and then the rest of our life we just kind of live for ourselves over there. Uh, just think about Colossians for a second. 
first thing we see is God reigns over everything. Chapter 1, Jesus is preeminent. He reigns over every inch of his creation from start to finish. He reigns over every minute of all of time. Like, he reigns and rules over all things. Therefore, when you leave this place of worship, you go into another place where he reigns and rules in our workplace, in our families, with our friendships. He reigns and rules over all things. Therefore, there is no sacred or secular. Wherever we are, we are to be faithful of him who rules. Now think about chapter 2 of Colossians. He purchased us by his blood. He, he, every piece of me, right? Uh, my hands, my feet, my head, my, my thoughts, my heart, my emotions. He, he purchased every piece of me. I am his. I'm his son by grace. So not only does he reign and rule over all things, he purchased every piece of me. There is no sacred or secular to my life, which is, brings such great purpose to the 40, the 50, the 60, the 70 hours you spend at work. Because those hours are his, and we live for him there. No matter where there is, no matter where we are, we are faithful first. And then in chapter 3, think about it. Chapter 1, he reigns over all things. Chapter 2, he's purchased every piece of us. Chapter 3, what we do in our worship of our God plays out in our Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday relationships all over every piece of our lives. There is no sacred or secular. The first question of our lives is, am I being faithful to my God there? And then especially at work, as we see in this passage. Uh, we were going to get these printed. <laughs> God is my boss t-shirts, right? God is my boss. Now this impacts everything about the way we work. How we work, first of all. We work with excellence and the highest amount of effort. We are not lazy at work. Christians ought to be the best workers in the whole workplace. Like, uh, people ought to be scratching their heads saying, why does he or she work that hard? Why, why do they come in on time or a bit early and, and, and leave on time or a bit late? Why are they giving their lives away with such excellence and effort at work, even when the boss isn't around, or even to this crummy boss that we have? <laughs> They're not gossiping about that person. They're working hard with excellence and effort. They're not quitting quietly through COVID. <laughs> Slowly doing less and less with more and more mediocrity. It doesn't only impact how we work. It impacts uh, who we work with, right? Uh, we, we see our boss and we see our uh, coworkers and colleagues as eternal souls and image bearers with eternal value. We don't, we don't step on those around us to get above or, or, or lie and cheat and steal from others in order to get above. And, and we don't slander and degrade or go behind our boss. We, we, we see others with uh, excellence and the value and the eternal weight that they've been called uh, and created with as, as God's creation. And, and we also, in that moment, when we go to work day in and day out, you sit in that cubicle and you think, why am I here? Would you know that right next to you is an eternal soul? A man or a woman is going to spend all of eternity with or without the Lord. And you're there with the good news of the gospel. So not only the inherent value of your work and the inherent value of how we treat others, but, but man, we are sitting next to eternal souls. And, and that's not the dude who sits next to me in that cubicle. That, that ends up being John, and, and he drives a Civic, and you get to know him, and you hear how broken his marriage or his family is. You get to uh, care for him, or when, he, when cancer hits, you get to walk with him in that in eternal soul. It impacts how we work, who we work with, and why we work. For our God, who gives an eternal reward for us, his pleasure is on us. 
And he's waiting for all of eternity when he's going to welcome us in. And by the grace of his son say, well done, good and faithful servant. How we work, who we work, and why we work. I, I caddied at a... Uh, at like this elite golf course uh, in college and then a little bit after when I was a teacher for a few years at uh, Caves Valley right up here in Baltimore. It was like 60,000 to join, then like 300, no, 300,000 up front to join and then 60,000 each year. So you're like, oh my gosh, you know. And that was way back when, you know. I'm like 43 now. My back is actually hurting right now. <laughs> and so I'm carrying two bags and and, you know, there's an obvious power dynamic there. I'm, I'm wearing a bright red shirt like all the caddies are and khaki pants. And, and they're coming in with their nice digs and their super expensive golf clubs. And I'm just carrying two bags. And, and you know, first thing, hey, I'm Matt. I've got my name tag right here, Matt, you know. And, and hey, I'm John. I'm like, hey, great to meet you, John. He's like, yeah. And I'm like, uh-huh, okay. So carrying the bags. And then he's like, hey, caddy. He throws me the ball. Wash my ball. I'm like, okay. So I'm washing the ball. Hey, caddy. He literally is dropping clubs on the course for me to pick up and wash, right? And, and, and he's calling me caddy, though. I'm like, I just, I'm Matt, right? And then so, after a little while, I'm like washing the ball, handing the clubs back. I just start calling him golfer. Here you go, golfer. That did not go well. Status or my boss was not happy about that. That's not great. You know, there's another guy at that club uh, who is the chaplain of the PGA. Uh, he'd actually got me the job there. He's a member there, a lifetime member. He knew every caddy's name. He knew their backstory. He knew what they were going through. He loved them and cared for them. I see this impacts how we work, who we work with, and why we work. The eternal value of people. I, I used to hate. I used to hate group projects. I don't know if you're like me. I, uh, you know, I hated group projects because I was going to get stuck with Jesse. He was a slacker. He just didn't do his work. And like, I knew he was either going to drag us down, we were going to get a worse grade, or I was going to work extra hard, we'd get an A, and he'd just kind of ride the coat there. I hated it, right? Like, I hated that. And, and, and look, if you're going into work, working with mediocrity, everyone there is noticing. And you're showing that you don't value the Lord who you work for. And you're certainly crushing your witness there. Because if you go and say, man, I want to tell you about the greatest Savior. His name is Jesus. And you get in this amazing conversation. They're just thinking, I don't want to be anything like this guy or this gal. And I don't want anything to do with his Savior. If this is what that, this Jesus produces, I, I don't want anything to do with that. I used to hate group projects. <laughs> Have you quietly quit at work? Are you working with excellence and effort? working with the eternal value of the people around you and working knowing that you have eternal value in Christ and you're free to risk and serve him with all you got it's how we work at first we uh, everywhere we are we are faithful and we have a boss his name is Jesus and, and then uh, I'll close in this piece of it the, the second principle is this living this kind of way in a kind of hyper local very present in the relationships around us living out the Jesus ethic uh, uh, we'll flip the world upside down as we live as family in Christ together. Back to, in a sense, that uh, slavery issue and the 
the societal constructs of injustice, uh, what we see here is that uh, living in this inside-out kind of way, when, when the church decides to live differently, uh, it sprouts up a new ethic and a new way of life which, which rips down injustice and brings about gospel flourishing when we live as a family of Christ together for our Savior Jesus. Uh, this inside-out change happens in a hyper-local way when bottom-up and top-down start leveraging all their power and their strength, not for themselves but for the good of the others around them in very tangible, physical, present ways in a hyper-local way, not bantering about things on the internet or, or shaming others or ostracizing and demonizing, but instead knowing one another and living the Jesus ethic brings about a transformation inside of the church, outside into the world in an overflow of gospel revolution that happened with Philemon and Onesimus. Uh, flip over a couple pages into Philemon. It's, it's it's just 25 verses, so you may flip by it. It's a tiny little letter. Remember, Onesimus is bringing it back, and Onesimus is the bondservant to Philemon. Paul is sending Onesimus back with this letter, Philemon, at the same time he's sending back Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians. And notice the transformation that takes root in this moment. So uh, first Paul in the first one to seven verses says, Philemon, you're amazing. Your faith is so great. I can't wait to see your faith worked out in real life. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And then he says, verse eight, accordingly to how great your faith is and how I can't wait to see it live out in real life, he says in verse eight, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, aka to free Onesimus, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He's laying it on pretty thick. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I've become in my imprisonment with him. You see the family language? Paul's living out this new ethic of family with Onesimus and he says Philemon when he gets home remember we read it earlier verse 15 and 16 he says perhaps this is why he had run away he found me Paul in Rome now I'm sending him back perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever no longer as a bondservant but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother Take him back, free him, bring him in as a family member, a beloved brother. Verse 17, so if you consider me your partner, he's like, and you do, <laughs> receive him as you would receive me. Paul leveraging his relationship, leveraging his power, leveraging his strength, that Onesimus would be freed under Philemon's care. They become family. Verse 18, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul says, I'll even spend my own money, my own resources to get him free that you would see this is what you ought to do. And I could command you to do it, but I'm asking you to do it because I want your heart to change and I want this whole system to change. Then he says in 21, I'm confident. I'm confident of your obedience. And I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. <laughs> I love that. It's going to go even further, he says. And so Paul says, look, we are family in Christ, and that family ought to be extended to all people. Paul leverages his power to free and help Onesimus and Philemon in their relationship together. And Paul uh, requests it, though he could command it because he wants his whole life transformation in real relationships, in real time, in real place to be absolutely transformed. 
from the inside out, the church living out a new ethic in Christ together, sprouting over and transforming everything there and then around them, changing the whole world. That's just what happens in Acts chapter 19, right? Uh, the, these people are doing this uh, idol sale and all this silver is being sold and used and for idol worship. And, and, and what they don't do is say, we need new laws. We need to change this or that. You've got to stop selling this. You've got to stop doing that. And, and we ought to fight for new laws and new justice. And, and we ought to do better education that we might treat each other better. And all these things are good and right. But we need a heart transformation, a, a radical relational transformation where we treat each other as family and know, listen, and love honestly and learn to love and leverage all of our resources for the good of the other who's unlike us, whoever us is. And so what happens in that moment, uh, the church from the inside out starts saying, we're not about this idol worship anymore. So they literally take all their silver and their idol worship stuff and their books, and they burn it all there. They say, we're going to live differently. And then Demetrius, who's the main idol worship seller in the town, is like, oh my gosh, he's mad. Like radical transformation is coming to their area because the church is living differently with and amongst themselves and with the world that's around them. And the whole thing crumbles. No more idol worship. No more silver sale. It, it just goes out of business so much so that they want to imprison all these new Christians because they're ruining everything. Ruining everything. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, I think this is a great fitting picture to close. In Arlington, at General Lee's house, a famous uh, Confederate general, we had this amazing reunion. There's this amazing reunion. Uh, of General Lee's descendants and, and the Greys and their descendants. Uh, those who owned the house, the Lees, and those they enslaved. Uh, for two years, they've been meeting on Zoom, beginning a relationship together. They'd reached out one to another. And, and there's quotes all through this. Uh, NPR wrote this amazing article about this. And, and there's quotes all through this that would kind of blow your mind of, I can't believe uh, this person is that generous and kind. Uh, talking about both sides of these relationships. And, and I can't believe that we're able to speak. Well, just listen. Uh, Selena Torres. She's the great-great-granddaughter of Selena Gray and Thornton Gray, uh, who were the slaves to Lee and Mary Custis Lee in this home. And when she writes, uh, here's what she says. These families refuse to allow General Lee and the past to be a figure of division and instead take the opportunity to come together and grapple with hard history and find the family ties that exist. Uh, Rob Lee, uh, the great-great-grandson of Robert E. Lee, is, is, is right there with her uh, in these pictures together, and, and they're sharing these insights with one another. And... Selena Torres, again, goes on, the great-great-granddaughter of the slaves in Robert E. Lee's home, says, at the end of the day, we're all becoming friends. Doesn't that blow your mind? Able to talk about the things that are super difficult without fighting or letting our feelings drive the way, Torres says. Some of these newfound relationships have been transforming. Lee and other participants say this at the end. We grew up uh, being excited that we were connected to the Lees, she says, but we also grew up knowing that slavery was horrible, that families didn't talk about that space in between, and that the Lees were enslavers. I think this opportunity is presented that allows our country to repair itself and heal over some of the division that we've had for so long, Hammond says. 
So much of the time we're talking past each other. And then I love this quote. We're not talking to each other. The change we want to see lived out, lived in the church first and then amongst those around us and then seeing this overflow of gospel transformation when the systems come under the bear of our master Jesus who treats us with such grace and mercy and leverages all of his power for our good. That's the master we will serve no matter where we are, when we're there, no matter what it looks like. And that's a master when we serve him that will bring about radical transformation, bringing heaven to earth and foretaste of what will come for all of eternity today. And every week we remember why that's true and how that's true and the power that transforms us and transforms through us is found in Christ our master who leveraged all he had, his body was broken on our behalf, and his blood was spilled, making us sons and daughters by grace. So if you're trusting in Jesus, would you remember, oh, what a master you've had, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled, that wherever you find yourself today, you would find yourself faithful to him first. And then as we live out these gospel truths in our lives, as with family, uh, with one another as family, and, and inviting others into the family by grace, that he might transform through us as well. Let's take and eat together.